was uh, March of 1775, and the Second Virginia Convention had gathered in Richmond, Virginia, at St. John's Church. And they were discussing, among a lot of things, certainly, but one of the, the main uh, subjects of conversation was the threat of the, the British threat that was upon the colonies at the time. They were gathered together, and they didn't really know exactly what to do. Um, and I think if you and I were think, we're thinking about July 4th in America, we think, well, of course we know what to do. This is America. We love America. We're going to fight for America. Of course we do. Yeah, but it's, uh, but the key thing, that's 245 years ago. We have 245 years of history under our belt. We know what America is today. At that time, they were torn because they knew that their lives were on the line. They knew that their livelihood was on the line. There was a debate going on on the floor of that church that said, are we willing to take peace? but at such a high cost of being under the thumb of Britain? Or are we willing to go to war knowing full well many of us will lose our lives? They didn't really know what the answer was. They honestly didn't. But there was one man that stood up and he knew exactly what needed to be done. The reports of the time said it was as if he had fire in his eyes when he said these words. The man named Patrick Henry and he said, It is vain, sir. To extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why can we hear idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased? at the price of chains and slavery? God forbid, or rather forbid it, Almighty God, he said, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. For Patrick Henry, and at least taking his words at face value, and I believe he meant what he said, nothing less than full and complete liberty from the tyranny of the British rule would have satisfied him. He was willing to lay down his life if it meant that, and he even said, as you even heard, he thought it might actually mean that if, if he's going to die one way or the other, he said, I'm willing to give my life if that's what it means. He'd sooner die than to not make this change. That sort of clear-eyed, uncompromising focus on what is needed, what must happen in order for us to be satisfied is what I want to try to get your attention pointed to this morning for just a few minutes. I'm glad that there were some men and some women and some people in our past that have had that kind of unwilling, uh, uncompromising view of what must be done in order to have a country like we have today. Thank God for America and God bless America. But there's an uncompromising focus that we need to get in our minds as believers, as Christians in 2021, that I want to give you this morning, I want to get this in your mind, that there is nothing but Jesus that will satisfy you. In this text that I'm about to turn your attention to, Jesus is talking and he's teaching and he's showing by his actions what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. In fact, this 
chapter, chapter 9, is in a larger context of the book of Mark. Mark, starting about verse, uh, chapter 8, going to about the end of chapter 10, and that whole section, Jesus is laying out for his followers. And there were some people that you know, the 12 disciples, as well as some names you probably never, would never hear. You won't know until you get to heaven. But there was a bunch of people that were following Jesus, and he was teaching them what it meant to be a disciple. And here in this passage, he is making it plain, plain to us. And I want you to, to, to follow along, please. Again, I encourage you to get a copy of God's Word because we're going to do this together. But I want you to see how He's teaching us that anything less than Jesus and Jesus alone is going to leave you waiting. It's going to leave you lonely. It is going to leave you needing something else, something more. And what He says in or Patrick Henry, rather, what he said, give me liberty or give me death, but can I just alter his words for just a minute and say, give me Jesus or just take me home? That's what I want your cry to be this morning. Before I begin, would you pray with me and ask the Lord to meet with us and speak to us through his word? Father, I want to ask that you'll help me to deliver to this congregation that has gathered. I think in the hearts and the motives that they do desire to serve you. But, Lord, we cannot be that apart from your Holy Spirit. I believe that there are people here who might be here. They may not even know why they're here. But, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to them and draw them. I pray, Lord, that this morning that you will use me as a mouthpiece to your Word, that your Holy Spirit will take what is said out of your Word and drive it into the hearts and minds of these people that are here. Please help us and change us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why in the world is Jesus the only thing that satisfies? Let me just tell you just a few things from this passage to begin with. Well, the first thing I want you to see is that there's nobody like Jesus because he's the only one that is always right on time. Start with me in Mark chapter 9 and verse 14. It says there in verse 14 that when he, when he came to his disciples, and speaking of Jesus, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. Now, Jesus has just been, if you were to go back a few verses, he's been on something called the Mount of Transfiguration. That's how you might have heard that story. You might have learned about it in Sunday school. So where there's a few, couple, three disciples there with him, and they see Jesus as he really is. As he is in the book of the Revelation, he is revealed to them in all of his glory. They are amazed, so amazed that they just think, oh my goodness, let's just stay here and worship a while. But they get a, a glimpse of who Jesus is. But he's up there for just a few minutes, for, for a little bit with those men. And as he comes back to re-engage with his ministry, he sees his disciples there, the ones that didn't go with him. There were only a couple that went with him. He sees the ones that are left behind there, and they're having a conversation with the scribes. You could think of these as the religious leaders of that day. These are the people, if you read the Gospels, these are the people that Jesus is always fighting with. They're always trying to trap Jesus. They're ultimately the ones who turn Jesus over to the Roman authorities. They are the ones who are Jesus' opponents, if you want to think of them that way. But they're there. The disciples are there in verse 14. As he comes down from this mountain, there's, there's a bunch of people gathered around. There's the disciples and there's the scribes. And they're having, it says there, that, um, excuse me, that the scribes are questioning with them. There's a debate going on. There's an argument going on. And Jesus shows up, but look what happens in verse 15. As that conversation is going on, it says in verse 15, and straightway 
all the people, when they beheld him, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. When Jesus shows up, everybody just drops what they're doing. There's an argument going on. We'll find it in a minute. There's a need that needs to be met. There's a problem here, but they just all of a sudden they see Jesus and they say, forget this, this is the one we're looking for. And they go running after him and they find Jesus. We start to learn a little bit about why they're so excited. Because if you go here in verse 16, that Jesus turns to the scribes and he asks them, he says, what question you with them? The scribes, I will tell you, they did not come to have a debate with the disciples. No offense to these disciples because these men were just men like I am, men like you and, and people like you all are, just regular folks. There, there's no, no, no offense to them, but they were not, if you will, intellectual heavyweights by no means. These men did not come, these scribes did not come to interact with the disciples. They came to interact with Jesus. Because Jesus was a formidable opponent for them. They were looking to take on Him. So when the scribes, when Jesus comes to them, says, what, what are y'all talking about? I think there was a little bit inside, this is just me speculating a little bit, but I think there was a little bit inside the scribes saying, finally, the real man's here. We don't have to mess with these chumps anymore. We're going to deal with the real man now. But then Jesus, or rather, there's somebody that comes emerging from the crowd in verse 17. One of the multitude answered him. So remember, Jesus asked the scribes, what's the questioning going on here? What's happening? But in verse 17, there's somebody that emerges and says, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And, what, and he says in verse 18, Whithersoever he taketh him, the spirit takes my son, he carries him, and he foameth and gnashes in his teeth and pines away. He's got, a, he's got a, a young son here. We don't know exactly how, how young, but he's probably at the oldest, a young teenager at his oldest. He's a young boy here, and he is being possessed by a demon. Uh, the Bible tells us later it's a deaf and dumb spirit, so he probably couldn't speak, he probably couldn't hear. There were probably other ailments, but this spirit would get a hold of him, and it would tear him, and it would hurt him, and it would destroy him. And this, he says there in uh, verse 18 that after he, he told him what was going on, he says, And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. So could you imagine this dad who brought his son to Jesus, and Jesus is not there? He says, well, I guess you boys will do. Could y'all help me? And they can't help him. They can't do anything for him. Could you imagine now the man that you brought your son to see is now entering into the picture? I think I'd be a little excited. Woo, he's here. Let's go after him. Let's go walk towards him. He's the one I'm trying to find. He's the one that I want. He's glad that the varsity squad showed up. He's glad that the real team, the real man is here. And of course, there's the disciples. <laughs> Can you imagine how embarrassed these boys must have been? Uh, not long previous, Jesus had given them uh, some power. He had given them some authority. He had told them some things to do. And they started kind of feeling themselves. You know how you kind of learn a new skill, a new talent? You say, I'm going to try it out today. And I think they thought that was going to happen. They were going to get to try out this new power that God had given them. And then the minute that they try to do it, falls flat. They couldn't do it. Could you imagine the relief in their hearts when Jesus kind of emerges over the horizon? Whoo, he's here. He can, be, he can take care of this. We don't look so stupid anymore. All of that is to simply tell you that what Jesus does, and he always does it, he does it in this story, he does it for you and for me, he's always showing up 
where we need Him, when we need Him. And you say, well, that means Jesus is in my back pocket. No, I didn't say that. I'm saying Jesus is always with you. Because you know what? You always need Jesus. But I can tell you, the minute you start looking for Him, the minute you start calling upon His name, He is there. He is available to you. He is there for you. Where you need He is always right on time. That's what Jesus is. Because Jesus is always right on time, I think He's all that's going to satisfy me. But I want you to see further that Jesus is not only always on time, He is, but He's also the only one who really cares for you. Look with me at the next verse. Verse, um, uh, excuse me, verse, yeah, that's verse 18. He tells about what happened here. Verse 19, when Jesus hears about what happens to this boy, He says that He answered him, verse, eight, verse 19, and says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now, and I want you to listen to what Jesus is saying. Probably not even just the words. Listen to the words, obviously, but there's an emotion behind what he's saying here. There's, there's a frustration. There's an exasperation. He says, how long is this going to go on? I, I, I'm not going to be here much longer. What are y'all going to do when I'm gone? He, he, there's, a, there's, a, there's an exasperation. There's a, he's a heartbroken over this. I imagine some of this has to do with his disciples, because his disciples should have been able to handle this. They've been given the power, but they didn't learn the lesson. You'll see this in a moment, but they didn't learn it all. I'm sure there was some of that. I'm sure some of this was anger over the devil's destruction, because what's going on with this boy? He's got this demon inside of him. That demon is tearing him from the inside out. He is ripping him apart. By the way, that's not just uh, uh, not just the thing of a scary story. This is what sin does to every person in the world, even to you. It tears us up from the inside out. Sometimes we don't even know it's happening. Sometimes we let it go on for years. Sometimes we think it's okay. Sometimes we think we can handle it. But the fact is, it does to you exactly what it did to this little boy. It will tear you up. It will destroy you. And I imagine some of Jesus' frustration and anger was because of the devil's destruction that was going on in this voice in this boy's heart and life. He goes on in the next verse to ask the dad, uh, rather, uh, rather, um, he asked him to come to him in verse 19, I apologize. Verse 19, he asked him to bring the boy to him. Verse 20, they do bring him. And then when he sees him, straightway the spirit says, so one more time, this boy is destroyed and one more time, he's hurt one more time. So Jesus asked the father in verse 21, how long is it ago? This just came unto him, and he said, of a child. And oftentimes, if he cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him, but thou canst do anything, listen to what he says, have compassion on us and help us. Sometimes you're in a position, you're hurting, you need something, maybe you have a problem you can't solve, maybe you're in a pit of despair, Maybe it's a sin that you just can't shake. You just can't get up, get over it, and give it up. And you just need somebody to care. You just need somebody to actually help you. You don't need somebody to give you just sweet words. You need somebody to actually get your hands in there and fix this problem. And that's all he's asking for. He I just need some compassion. I just need somebody to care. I just need somebody to help. And I want you to see that's exactly what Jesus did. Now, he talks to him about faith in the next verse. He says, listen, he says, 
If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Of course, the father seems a little upset about that, but he says he cried out and he says with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. But, but I want you to notice what, what happens here. Jesus, in verse 25, he rebukes the foul spirit. He says to that spirit, that dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter into him no more. And the spirit cried, verse 26, and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch as many said he was as one dead. The, the point I want you to see is, Jesus didn't just talk about it. He didn't debate with the scribes. Jesus didn't just say, I'll think about it. Or, I'm sorry you're having to deal with that. You know what Jesus did? He took care of it. He actually cared enough. Yes, there's emotion in his heart. Yes, there's probably even tears on his face. But he actually entered into the situation and he fixed it. So much so that after that boy, it says there in verse 26, is people think he might have been dead, but they weren't sure if he was dead or alive. Look what Jesus says in verse 27. Don't, don't miss this. When I read the word Jesus, you need to say it's creator of the world, the God of the universe, the omnipotent one, the one who was before time and will always exist. Look what this one did. He took him by the hand and lifted him up. What Jesus did, he cares enough that when that little boy was sitting on the ground, laying on the ground, almost at death, I happen to believe, y'all can disagree with me, we can have different of opinion on this because it's not clear. I happen to believe the boy was dead. You know what I think that Jesus did? I think he lifted him from the dead. That's my two cents. Y'all take it and leave it, just so you know. But I think what Jesus did is he lifted his hand down there and he took that boy up. And I think in that tender touch, he doesn't have to do that, but he just tender and loved that boy enough that he reached his hand down from the lowest part, the place that would have been beneath any of us to even go there. But he goes and he lovingly picks that little boy up and lifts him up off the ground. Everybody else in this crowd, I think, has mixed motives at best, but Jesus, Jesus cares about that boy. He always cares about your situation. The devil, all he wants to do is he wants to kill and steal and destroy. That's all he wants to do. That, that, that the people around them, the multitude, and I, I, I know there's some good people in this world, but they're few and far between, let's be honest about it. You know what most people want? Just like when that, we were here Friday, uh, sorry, Thursday night, and there was that rest up here on uh, 220. You know what everybody was doing when I was going south on 220? Looking at that wreck, because everybody just wants to show. Everybody wants a good show. You know that? That's how people are. They just want to see something. They don't really want help. They don't really want to get involved. I'm not suggesting we should get involved in the car accident, you understand? But what I'm trying to get across is that people aren't really wanting to be involved. They just want to see a good show. Even the disciples, I think they were good men at heart, but they just wanted to try out their new power. And the scribes are only there for a debate. When you're going through something, when you're in the middle of your pain, there are other people in this world who are going to try to turn it into a political discussion, a theological debate. They might even just like it because it's some good gossip to talk about. But you know what Jesus does? He feels your pain. And He has compassion. And He has the power to do something about it. That's who Jesus is. He's always right there when you need Him. And He's the only one who really cares about your soul. And you know what Jesus does? He has the power to fix it. Go back with me, if you don't mind, to verse 23. Jesus tells the man, he says, listen, it's, it's, it's simple. 
If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. All you got to do is believe. Y'all ever heard that before? Just believe. Put your faith in Jesus. I hope y'all have heard that before. I'm sure you've heard that before. Sounds simple, doesn't it? But can you identify with this dad as he responds to Jesus' simple statement? Just put your faith in me, I'll take care of the rest. Look what that dad says. Straightway, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. I can only imagine, I, I can't completely, completely sympathize with this man. I've never had a child in this state, but I've had my children in bad situations before, and I can imagine what he must have felt to some extent. Here's a man saying he can fix my son. Here's a man saying he can solve the problem. And Lord, I want to believe that. You look like you care. That's why I brought him to you to begin with, because I think you can do something. But I've been living with this for a while. Anything we've tried didn't work. I believe, but you don't understand how weak my faith is. I believe, but it's just not strong enough. He wants to believe, but he's just not strong enough. He reminds me of that man over in John 5 who's been laying by the pool of Bethesda for so many years, and he says, I can't get down into the water because somebody else beats me to it. The same idea here. This man, he's like, I want this, but I just can't get where I think you're supposed to be. But look what Jesus does. He doesn't say, well, hang on, wait till your faith is a little stronger, then I can help. He doesn't say, wait a minute, you said you don't fully believe. Help my unbelief. No, he doesn't say, he doesn't rebuke the man. What does he do? Verse 25, he rebukes the foul spirit. He comes after the demon, the devil, and he rebukes it. And do you know what that devil does? That devil obeys. That devil comes out of that boy. That devil is no longer there. In fact, he comes out and, and it says there, if it lasts about death and dumb spirit, I charge thee, come out and enter him no more. Look at verse 26. The spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. That spirit was absolutely upset. That spirit knew better than to do anything other than what Jesus told him to do. Yet he was angry about it and upset about it and hurt about it. Because what you need to hear is that Jesus is enough. Always enough, never anything more, but only Jesus, even, and I'll even go so far as to say, especially when wet, your faith is just a little bit weak. That's when He gets really strong. That's when He shows up in a big way. When you're sitting there saying, I don't know how to do this, Lord, and He says, just step back and watch me. He's the one that makes hell tremble. He's the one that makes the dead alive and live, not just live, but to live more abundantly, he said. He's the one that gives hope to those that are hopeless. He's the one that gives men like myself who are inept. Don't know which way's up, don't know which way to go, don't know how to get there, don't even know where they're supposed to go. He gives those people usefulness and direction and hope. He makes faithless people, and weak people, strong. Now listen to me. He does those amazing things, not because the object of his transformation is so amazing. <laughs> I'm a visiting preacher, so I've got to be careful how I say this. Y'all are nice people, but y'all ain't the strongest lot in every sense of that word. Let's be honest with ourselves. There's smarter people in this world. There's better looking people in this world. 
There are more eloquent people in this world. They might even be more loving and caring people in this world. But did you know that the success, and I use that in the most general and generic sense of the word, the success of this congregation, of your family, of your life, depends not on the strength of your ability. It depends only and solely on Jesus Christ Himself. He is the one that makes the transformation spectacular. That's why he takes this. Paul writes over in 1 Corinthians, the things that are nothing, the things that are not, the things that are thrown off, the cast off, the things that are that the world looks at as foolish, and he makes those things amazing. That's what he does, because he is always enough. There's something that amazing. Rather, if I should say someone that amazing, who's always on time, who truly cares for your soul, who's fully and totally able to solve what's ailing you. I, I think he might be the one we want to go to, don't you? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm like the man. Lord, I believe. <laughs> Help thou my unbelief. I know that's the right answer. But someone that amazing is the one that we need to look to for our satisfaction. And I would be hard-pressed in this congregation, just knowing the, the faces of those of you that I know, I think I'd be hard-pressed in this congregation to go among you and to find someone that says, oh, no, I don't believe anything you're talking about. I think that most of you, for the, for the most part, if not to a person, you would say, I believe what Jesus said. And I would say that that's exactly where the disciples were in this story as well. But why is it the issue fixed until Jesus comes along? Let's just see this in verse 28. After this, after this has happened, they go back into the house, he says, when he come into the house, his disciples ask him privately. I don't blame them. I think I would have done the same thing. Hey, Jesus, now that everybody's gone, let me ask you a question. Why should we not? Why should not we cast him out? Why, why shouldn't we do that? What's the problem? What was happening there, Lord? What was going on? Why, if I could put my, myself in that situation, Lord, I believe in you, but, but why can't I, why am I still dealing with this problem? Why am I still upset over this person? Why am I still worried about this situation? Why is that still bugging me? I believe in you. I, I know the right answers. Why am I still bothered by this? So Jesus gives the answer. In verse 29, and he said unto them, This time can come forth by nothing, but by prayer and fasting. The disciples are guilty of exactly what I'm guilty of, and I believe many of you are guilty of as well. We are approaching these things with what might be called half measures. I've tried to say it once, I'll say it a hundred more times if I can in the few minutes I have remaining. Only Jesus satisfies. Only Jesus can touch the need of your soul. Only Jesus is the one you must turn to. So many people take this thing we call Christianity. They go through the motions. They look good. As the Bible says over in 2 Timothy, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. We go through the motions, we do the right things, we say the right words, we go to the right places, we end up in the right spot. We 
Jesus said, this requires prayer and fasting. Now, let's make sure we're for us. I know I'm at the end of my time, but I know this is not the time to speak on this issue of that. But y'all just, y'all just hang with me for just a minute. I just don't, don't kick me now. But hang with me for just a second on this. Hang with me. Listen. He says, prayer and fasting is two things here. What's prayer? Y'all know what prayer is. You've learned it. If you went to Sunday school as a little kid, you probably learned what prayer is. You've seen it modeled in this, from, this, from this platform this morning a couple of times. It's just going to God and asking for his help. But you know what that does? If I were to go up to Brother Edward and say, Brother Edward, I, 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 I'm, you know, I'm hungry. Could you give me $5 and we go get a, a Big Mac meal? Can't get it for $5 anymore. Can't get $7, whatever it is. Well, why am I going to it? Because I, I need help. I'm dependent on him. You, you see what I'm trying to say? That when you go to when you go to the Lord, that's what you're doing. You're praying to him. You're going to him. Yeah, you want to have a conversation with him. Those are all wonderful things to do. But in the context here, we're talking about depending on him. We're depending on God solely for the answer. We need to pray. We need to go to him and say, God, I've got a problem. I need your help. I can't fix this. I've tried and I've failed. So, Lord, I need your help. That's the first part of it. Second word. Now, this is, I know I'm in a Baptist church, so I recognize that this is a tantamount cursing in front of you, but we are going to be fasting, he says. Fasting. Y'all know what fasting is? I think by your reaction, you have no idea what it is, because if you thought, if you knew what it was, you'd be able to be storming the pulpit right now. Because I'm telling you, fasting means going without eating. Stop, stop feeding yourself for some period of time. Why are we doing that? Because we are praying, we are going to God for our needs, depending on Him for the answer, but we're also withholding something from ourselves. We're withholding something from ourselves to remind our physical body that there is only one thing, one person who satisfies the longing of our soul. We're doing both of these things. We are going to God and we are reminding ourselves by any means necessary hurting, if we're hurting, if we are, we're, we're lonely, whatever that is, we're just trying to focus in on the fact that we are in that position and saying, God, you're the only one that can help me. I'm not going to turn to anything else, including food, fasting. The problem is, and I, 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 I need y'all to listen to this real quick, we are far too easily satisfied. If something goes wrong, we turn to worldly remedies. Like food, I'll, I'll be the first to confess to you. I get a little, get a little down, a little sad. You know what I do? Uh, it's not chocolate for me. Ice cream. Ice cream is my is my little uh, vice. Give me some loose tracks ice cream in that freezer. Oh, oh my goodness! All my worries are gone until the next morning when I recognize I've been eating a whole gallon of ice cream for the last week. And I uh, realized I've gained a few more pounds than I need to be gaining, and sugar ain't in the right spot. And all the point I'm trying to get at is it doesn't really solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. And I use that as a silly example, but there are lots of less silly examples, and maybe even deadly examples, for the entertainment we participate in, some of the things that we depend on, the experiences we want to go after. Those are the things we're looking to for security. We believe in every worldly hope. We're looking to our friends. We're looking to politicians. Lord, help us. We're looking to our money, our reputation. Those things don't really care for your soul. Don't, don't get me wrong. I know your friends love you. But they don't care for you like Jesus does. 
to lean on every worldly dice. Our education, our government, our religion, our drugs. But none of it can fix what ails us. I'm closing here, but I need you to hear this. We have to acknowledge the horror. Just like this young this man did with his young son. Acknowledge the horror and the hopelessness and the defeat that is in our soul. Instead of every time we get a little nagging feeling, let's jump on the internet and look at something. Let, let's, let's go out and buy something. Let's go on vacation. Let's get our head a little deeper in work. No, no, no. Let's go ahead and realize we're hurting. Our souls are empty. We need something. And what we need is not another bowl of ice cream. What we need is not another new shirt or a new car or whatever it is that you use. And again, I may not hit on your sin. That's just because I don't know you well enough. <laughs> Let's talk later and I can help you. But my point is, we've got to get to the point where we realize that hopelessness and that horror in our soul cannot be satisfied with short-term distractions. There's only one, there is only one who can satisfy our soul.